Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Last week we finished with Moses shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro in the wilderness. Forty long years have passed and momentous events are about to interrupt his desert sojourn. As you take the time to read the block of text from chapter 2 verse 23 through to verse, uh, chapter 4 verse 31, you'll, you might notice a literary device that we call an inclusio. Now an, an inclusio is like a set of brackets. It creates a frame by placing similar material at the start and again at the end of the section. At the beginning of the section, we have chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, and it reads, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Now, in that passage at the beginning of the inclusio, at the start of the brackets, there are two verbs of grief. The children of Israel groaned and cried out, and there are four verbs of divine reaction. God heard, remembered, looked upon, and acknowledged them. When you go to the end of this set of texts, to the end of the brackets, we have chapter 4, verse 31. It says, So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked upon their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, in that portion, we have two verbs of the Lord's intervention. He visited and looked upon, and four verbs of Israel's response. They believed, they heard, they bowed, and they worshipped. And in between that inclusio, in between those brackets, we have one of the most remarkable events of the entire Bible, Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. Now, just before we get into that text and begin to look at that, there's a question that sometimes arises in the minds of people. It certainly arose in mine. And, it's, and the question goes along the lines of, why, why did God wait so long before he called Moses to deliver the children of Israel? I mean, Moses is 80 years old at this point in time, and the children of Israel were enslaved before he was born. And we don't know how long that was, but it was obviously significant. That's a long period of time. Why couldn't have God acted sooner? Now, it's actually quite hard to answer that question definitively, or perhaps for some people, acceptably. But it seems that the apparent delay in delivering Israel may have had something to do with God's moral providence at work in the wider arena of world events. When Israel comes out of Egypt, two nations are about to suffer dreadful uh, judgment, divine judgment. The Egyptians at the start of Israel's journey and the Canaanites at the end of it. Egypt suffers divine judgment as Israel went out of the land. The Canaanites are about to suffer as Israel comes into the land. Both of those nations, the Egyptians and the Canaanites, had been given a time of probation. Both of them had proved to be obstinate and recalcitrant and both were finally judged. You know, the Lord doesn't seem to feel the need to put forth his mighty power all at once and his ways with sinners are patient and probationary. He will never overwhelm the sinner before full opportunity has been given for repentance and amendment of life. 
But that patience should never be presumed on or trifled with. And I'm reminded of Psalm 2, which says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Then it says, He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. And there is an adverb of time in there that is ominous. Then the Lord shall speak to them. That word then is as if there is a line in the sand. They have mocked, they have resisted, they have raged. But then God steps in. Now, God is slow to anger, but he is not without anger. And the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God when that anger is riled. So, okay, with that as an aside, back to Moses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And and he and and when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the midst of the bush. So the scripture says that Moses kept the flock of Jethro, and the Hebrew involves a verbal form which stresses continuance. He had been keeping the flock. And actually, we could put in the words still without any kind of damage to the text. Moses was still keeping the flock of Israel. For, 40, for Moses, it had been 40 years and counting. And we note that God is never in a hurry. Not only were the nations in a time of probation, but so was Moses. God was looking for a shepherd for his people. It says in Psalm 77 verse 20 that you lead your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And God's chosen man had to look after somebody else's sheep for a period, learning to be faithful in the humdrum routine of a shepherd's life. That casts light on Jesus' desire for us to be found faithful in the small, seemingly unimportant things. Remember in Luke 16, verse 10, where he said, He that's faithful in that which is a little is faithful also in much. And when we are unjust, unjust in that which is a little, we will be unjust in that which is much also. So here's Moses learning to just be, day by day, a faithful shepherd. And in this instance, this day, without any warning that it would be a day other than 40 years worth of days, he goes to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, by the way, is also known sometimes as Sinai. Now, I just want to say it wasn't the mountain of God before this experience. It was this experience that forever on called Horeb and Sinai the mountain of God. Mountains were to figure largely in Moses' spiritual journey. This is the first encounter with one that we know about, and it was for Moses a mount of new beginnings. In chapter 19 through verse 34, Moses is back at Sinai, this time with the people of Israel, and on that occasion, the mountain is a mountain of revelation. Some scholars say that during that season, Moses ascended and descended the mountain seven times as he was given the law. North of Horeb is Mount Pishkar, which was the mountain of disappointment for Moses because it was from here that Moses viewed the promised land that he had been disqualified from entering. 
And those mountains weren't the last mountain to figure in Moses' journey. When we come into the New Testament, he is with Elijah and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're discussing the long-awaited and much-prophesied second exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish. So here he is, shepherding the flock in the shadow of the mountain, and verse 2 states, An angel of the Lord appeared in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. When we look at the references in the Old Testament to the angel of the Lord, we find that we are talking about somebody very special. We are not talking about a created angel. Our created angels are messengers that speak and act for God, but this angel not only speaks for God, but acts and speaks as God. This is what most scholars call, uh, call a theophany. It's a manifestation of God himself. This angel of the Lord is identical with Yahweh, Jehovah, but mysteriously also different. You know, there's a passage in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, The Lord whom you seek, the angel of the covenant whom you desire. And in that passage, we have both the coming of the angel and the coming of the Lord. They are one and the same thing. And yet, mysteriously, they are somewhat differentiated. Scholar Alex Motcha says, There is only one other in the Bible who is both identical with and yet different from the Lord. These revelations of this unique angel can be appreciated only when we understand them as a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus, clothes himself with fire, which is a very appropriate symbol. With fire, we are both drawn and enthralled by it, and yet we know it's dangerous so that we tell our children, oh, don't play with fire. Or we say of somebody who's walking a very dangerous path, man, they are playing with fire. Fire demands to be taken seriously. Quite frankly, most of us, I think many of us, would be much happier if God had described himself as clay. Clay can be molded and we can make of it what we will. And truth be told, we would like to make God much as we would want him to be. And I hear all the time people saying things like, well, I just can't believe in a God who would do that. The God that I believe in would, uh, and you can fill in the blank. The God I believe in is like and fill in the blank. I think it was Voltaire once quipped, God created men in his image and they've returned the favor. Clay can be molded by the toucher, but fire can't. Fire melts those who touch it. Fire is absolutely unyielding. Fire engages all our senses. You see its brightness. You feel its heat. You hear the roar or the crackle. You smell the smoke. You don't believe in fire. You experience fire. Blaise Pascal was a brilliant mathematician and scientist and a dedicated Christian who lived in France in the 1600s. He had a significant encounter with God that we know about because after he died, they found a note sewn into the lapel of his, of his coat and it read, The year of grace, 1654, Monday the 23rd of November, from about half past ten at night until about half past midnight, fire. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and the learned, Certitude, certitude, he says, feeling, joy, peace, God, Jesus Christ, my God and your God. He had an encounter with God that dramatically impacted his life and he described it as fire. 
The link between fire and God's presence runs through the whole of the book of Exodus. We find it here in the bush. We see the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. In chapter 19, verse 18, it engulfs the mountain at the giving of the law. And in chapter 40, verse 38, it's the fire that comes down on the tabernacle. And it isn't just in Exodus that we see this symbol. It's a symbol of God's presence right through the entire scripture. You can go back to Genesis chapter 15 when God cut covenant with Abraham. The pieces of the animal were laid out and a fiery torch went between the pieces as the covenant was cut. In Isaiah chapter 10 verse 15 it says the light of Israel shall be for fire and his holy one for a flame. John the Baptist spoke about being baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire. At Pentecost the tongues of fire came down separated and rested on them all and in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 we are told our God is a consuming fire. You know, the really interesting thing about this part of the story is that Moses doesn't seem overly surprised by, by the burning bush. And the reason is, is it wasn't necessarily an unusual sight in the wilderness during the hot Sinai summers. Tinder dry bushes sometimes caught the refracted rays of the sun magnified through the quartz crystals that lay randomly on the ground. And they acted like a magnifying glass. Bedouins used these quartz crystals to refract the sun's rays to light their campfire. And, and as I say, it was quite normal for this to happen in a bush to burst into flames. And in addition to that, there were sometimes desert plants called gas plants that had small oil deposits in their leaves. So when those caught fire, the display was quite remarkable for at least a time. If you, read the if you read the text closely, you'll notice that what caught Moses' attention was not that there was a fire, but that the fire did not consume the bush. A bush that burst into flames but wasn't consumed by the flames didn't fit any mode of reality that Moses knew of. This was truly a sight to behold. This was inexplicable. It was a disrupting event to Moses. What, what do you and I do when we are confronted with such disrupting, inexplicable, inexplicable events. Well, we should do what Moses did. He turned aside. In the Hebrew, it has the idea of turning off a well-trodden path. He follows this disrupting event, allowing it to detour him from the normal course of his routine in his life. Ordinary life makes us busy, hectic, and generally unavailable to, or at least disinclined to, follow these detours. Who knows how many burning bushes we may have passed on our course of our harried and frantic days. And I'm reminded of a portion of C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters. For those of you who are not familiar with Screwtape Letters, it is a fictional work in which a senior devil writes and gives advice to a junior devil as to how to ensure that his patient, which is the human that he's working on, never ever falls into the clutches of the enemy, which of course in this instance is actually God. In this portion, the senior devil is talking about distracting a patient away from any inexplicable thoughts or events that might be taking place in his life and to ensure that he doesn't turn aside. And it reads like this. The devil says, I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read at the British Museum. One day he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. And the enemy, of course who is God, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw 20 years of my work beginning to totter. And I immediately suggested that it was about time he had lunch. The enemy probably had some counter suggestion. You, you, you know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them. 
This was, uh, this was much more important than lunch. At least I think that's what he must have said because uh, I said quite, in fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning. That, at that, the patient brightened up considerably and by the time I'd added, much better to come back after lunch and go at it with a fresh mind, he was halfway to the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he had reached the bottom of the steps, I had got him into an unalterable conviction that whatever odd ideas might come into a man's head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life, <coughs> excuse me, by which he meant the bus and the newsboy was enough to show him that all this sort of thing just couldn't be true. So, so often we look and then turn away rather than turn aside. We're distracted by our equivalent of the number 73 bus and the newsboys. You, you might say, Don, I wouldn't be turned away from a burning, burning bush. No way. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure. Burning bushes, these inexplicable disrupting events come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And I know that I've missed my share as I've rushed my way through a busy, distracted day. You know, sometimes burning bushes can come in the form of an inexplicable person. At one season in our lives, Karen and I were looking for guidance about a very significant change of direction. And at a conference I was attending, uh, and a person, completely unknown to me, came up and spoke a word to me that proved to be absolutely pivotal in our journey. It was a word and a person that I could have easily missed. I didn't know them. I had no idea of their credibility. It would have been so easy to dismiss it and to turn away. I, I heard another story about a woman who made a very terrible and costly mistake at her place of employment. Because she was a junior in that place of employment, it might easily have cost her her job. But her immediate superior, her boss, took the rap for her. Being in a somewhat more senior position, he never faced the loss of his job over it, and he didn't throw her under the bus. He did receive a significant rebuke from his seniors, and he took it without saying uh, and revealing the person who had made the mistake. And later the woman asked him, why, why did you do that? She had experienced many bosses who had took the credit for their underlings' work, but never one who had taken the blame for it. And when she inquired, he simply said that he served a saviour who had taken the blame for him. And he was happy that she was able to be spared the boss's wrath. An inexplicable event for her. And she asked him, what church do you go to? And later that week on the Sunday, attended that church and became a believer. An inexplicable person, or at least a person who did an inexplicable thing. I guess she could have very easily just sighed a he, uh, 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 heaved a sigh of relief and uh, not followed through with any of her questions without turning aside. Sometimes a disruption may come in the form of an inexplicable thought or train of thought. Again, I recently read of a person who was committed to a materialistic evolutionary view of the world and uh, he was in the midst of protesting some injustice where he felt human values had been badly diminished and trodden on and in the midst of the process he found himself thinking about what he was doing in terms of what he believed as a worldview and he suddenly realised if life is a cosmic accident and can be explained as the survival of the fittest, how is it that I feel this that the exploitation that was, is taking place of the weak and vulnerable is wrong. Should, shouldn't I not cheer it on because it is the survival of the fittest? What he did with that train of thought then was crucial. Would he turn aside or would he turn toward it?
He couldn't answer his own question. Would he simply dismiss it and get on with his protest or follow where it led? A burning bush might come in the form of an inexplicable trouble. We, we all want life to go well and to be lived well. Uh, and, but when it does, we are very, we're not really motivated in any way to turn aside to anything. We're just quite happy with the way things are. Trouble, as unwelcome as it is, can open the door to a burning bush moment for us. Just this week, a couple of days ago, a neighbour engaged me in a conversation, concerned about what's transpiring at the moment in Europe. And he said, Don, you're a religious man. What's happening in our world? Is this the end of the world? Trouble can make us turn aside. And if we will turn aside and follow the train of thought, a burning bush experience may well await. Sometimes a burning bush can come in the form of an inexplicable emptiness. Even in the midst of success, this profound, deep existential emptiness could lead to a burning bush moment if people followed it. Tennis star Boris Becker was at the very top of the tennis world and yet he said he was on the brink of suicide. He said, I'd won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player ever. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. I had everything. And yet I was so desperately unhappy. I had absolutely no inner peace. What do you do with an inexplicable emptiness? Do you follow where it might lead or you simply carry on with your life? Becker's not the only one to have felt that sense of emptiness. The echoes of a hollow life pervade our culture. One doesn't have to read many contemporary biographies to feel the same frustration and disappointment in so many. Jack Higgins, who was the author of the novel The Eagle Has Landed, was once asked what he would have liked to know as a young man. And he said, I'd like to have known that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. People who pursue these mirages find that there's emptiness. It can be that that inexplicable emptiness can open the door to a burning bush if we will turn aside. These can be moments when we turn aside. Unfortunately for many, they simply become uh, a motivation to pursue the very next mirage on the horizon. I'm sure that you can think of other inexplicable possibilities that could open us up to an encounter with God if we'll turn aside. Elizabeth Barrett Browning once wrote, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush, a fire with God, but only those who see it take off their shoes. The rest of us sit around and pick the blackberries. Well, Moses turned aside to see this sight. Here was a flame nourished by its own life, not needing any external fuel to feed it. It was truly a living flame. And the essence of this revelation is that Yahweh is the living God, a self-maintaining, self-sufficient identity, a, re a reality that does not need to draw vitality from any outside source. If the flame is a symbol of God's presence, perhaps Moses and us should see in the bush a symbol of himself or ourselves. Here is an ordinary, earthly, desert thorn bush, an acacia bush, as common as chips, we would say, to a penny. It wasn't a tall, lofty, spreading oak or cedar, just a bramble bush, and yet it can be filled with the fiery passion of God without being consumed. A fire that does not consume the bush. You know, so many of the world's passions and enthusiasms end up burning people up. I've seen people passionate about all kinds of causes, seen them in 10 years' time, and they're completely burned out and have turned away from that. 
the hippies of the 60s become the 80s of the yuppies by virtue of complete disillusionment, the fire and passion that they once had now burnt and gone. God's passion and God's mission doesn't do that to people. Just before we come to the actual conversation that takes place between God and Moses, I want to alert you to something that is sometimes completely missed because we're so familiar with the story that we actually don't read it well. God, while he could have done so, does not overwhelm Moses' defences and arguments. In this dialogue, there is genuine disagreement, argument and challenge. Moses' questions to God find an openness in God and actually lead to a fuller knowledge and revelation. You know, it seems that simple deference or passivity in God's presence actually might close down revelatory possibilities. God is open to being questioned. James speaks of the wisdom that comes from above as being easily entreated, which means it's open to reason and willing to be convinced. You can interact with it. You can ask questions. God doesn't mind us asking our questions. Obviously, how we ask them is really important. The spirit and attitude in which we ask them is important. We all know as parents that when a child says, why is that the way it is, Dad? And why is that? Uh, are very, very different questions, though the wording is uh, very, very similar. God treats this dialogue with Moses with integrity, and he honors his insight and even adopts his, or adapts rather, his original plan to include Aaron. It seems that God, as he's interacting with Moses, is willing to adapt and to change. Um, obviously, as you read the story, God is not um, actually delighted with that option. In fact, he does get angry with Moses. Nevertheless, amazingly, he condescends to accept what people will do with their free will powers that they have been given. Throughout the conversation, God takes Moses' concerns with the utmost seriousness and treats him with uncommon patience. Those who are brought close to God retain their integrity even in moments of closest context. They are not passive recipients, but active, even opposing responders. The human partner has a say in shaping the direction and outcome of events. Throughout this story, neither God nor Moses act alone in bringing Israel out of Egypt. God acts in and through the work of Moses, and the activity of both is crucial. We see this worked out in the references to the staff or the rod that Moses carries and does many of his miracles with. Sometimes it's called Moses' rod or God says it's your rod. Other times it's called the rod of God. Well, you say, well, which is it? Is it Moses' or is it God? It's both in tandem. God's sovereignty is not one of impersonal fate or puppet-on-a-string manipulation. God genuinely responds to people's responses to him. We see another example of this in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 38 and uh, the first six verses. You, you, um, many of you will be familiar with the story. Isaiah the prophet comes to Hezekiah, who is king at the time, telling him to put his house in order because he is going to die. The Bible says Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and begins to cry and pray out. And Isaiah is barely out the door when the Lord speaks to him and says, go back. And so Isaiah goes back and tells the king that God has heard his prayer and heard his cries and is going to give him another 15 years in his life. Now, now some might say, well, God planned that all along. He was just kind of playing with Hezekiah to see what he would do. But I, I think that would be disingenuous on God's part. It seems to me, at least, that he was genuinely moved by Hezekiah's grief and prayer and that he changed his mind and said, I'm going to give him 15 more years.
And I would want to finish this message by saying our interaction with God really, really matters. We are not simply pawns in God's prophetic purposes. We are participants and what we bring to the table really does matter. The choices that we make, the decisions that we enter into, the way we speak to God and the things that we pray about change things. You know, in the book of Genesis, Abraham almost barters with God over Sodom and Gomorrah and the number of righteous people inside it that would be uh, needed to spare. And God continually gives way to Abraham and Abraham stops before God does. There's so much that we can learn from this passage of Scripture about who God is and about how he acts, especially as we engage with him in prayer and in conversation. And uh, next time we will actually go into the conversation. But can I suggest you go back over this passage, read, read that, the brackets from the first bracket to the last and get a sense of this incredible encounter that Moses has with God in the burning bush and, and, and begin to um, approach life with eyes that are wide open for inexplicable uh, events in your life that, that sometimes can happen, I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but sometimes they happen with a degree of regularity. And, and as many times as not, we simply look and then look away. Oh, I've seen that before, a burning bush. That happens all the time. And we don't actually look as Moses looked and, and rarely do we turn aside. And perhaps there are encounters to be had with God that as yet have not been, ha ha not been had simply because we're too busy, we're too distracted. And maybe the wilderness years have not quietened the noise of our souls. And we need to let God work deeply and profoundly within us so that our eyes are open to those potential burning bushes that lay in our path. Keep your eyes wide open as you go into the next week. God bless you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.